grab your Bibles, turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes 1, you may remember uh, during COVID, and I know you don't like to remember a lot about COVID, uh, we started a series through Ecclesiastes. It wasn't necessary verse by verse, though mostly we looked at each verse. Um, but I uh, really felt during that time for Sunday evenings to us to explore uh, Ecclesiastes. We made it through like chapter 8, and I think we got shut down again or something like that. I don't know. Um, but uh, we never did finish it, and part of me wanted to sort of pick up where we left off, but I don't think that's necessary. And since we've been going through uh, Solomon in the morning and looking at his writings in the evening, we've looked at all of his major writings, Song of Solomon, the Psalms, and whatnot. And I think it's fitting for us to, to get a rough idea of some of what is in this book. Ecclesiastes is a book I love and I haven't quite figured out. Um, there's a marriage joke in there somewhere. Um, but uh, uh, so I, I just love it. Like every time I read it, I, I, I discover something. You know, I, I think it's the greatest work of philosophy in history. At the same time, I don't quite have it all figured out. Um, so maybe we can... Uh, work through this together. But Ecclesiastes 1, we're going to read the first two verses. We'll look at others, but for to start, because this is the thesis is laid out here, we want to start here. So if you'll stand with me, reverence to God's word, we'll read these first two verses. Solomon writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, verse 1, the words of the preacher, uh, you may have a teacher or something like that. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king of Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Our Lord, we ask as we come to a seminal work in um, Scripture. It's a difficult work. Um, we we know that there is such deep truth here that often we are too blind to see it, or maybe we don't want to see what it is Solomon is showing us. So help us through your Spirit to grasp its meaning, apply it to our lives, and be transformed by it. So, Lord, open our entire being that we may believe your Word. So we hear your word and apply your word. May I decrease so you can increase. In name yourself, we pray. Amen. Be seated. I don't know if, if, if you've done a lot of exercising yourself, but um, treadmills are really popular. You can go to most hotels now, and they will have a, a fitness area, and in there will be probably at least one treadmill. Whenever I travel, I'll often try to go to the fitness area. Uh, they usually have a football game on, and I can... Uh, get on a treadmill. I have a treadmill at the house. I've, I've put some miles on. It's a really nice treadmill. It was actually given to us one of our members and it replaced my cheaper treadmill I had before that. And uh, they're, they're really uh, beneficial for, for many reasons. However, have you ever been on a treadmill and feel like you were being tortured? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a reason for that. Uh, for one, you, you may feel like, okay, uh, I've been running for an hour, but it's only been two minutes, right? That's very common. I once uh, put up like one of my favorite you know, sitcoms, you know, 20, 30-minute episodes, and I think, well, I will be so entertained by this show that I won't even notice I'm running. I didn't make it to the first commercial. Like, this is the dumbest thing in the world, right? I, this is torture, right? Can I tell you why it feels like torture? It's because treadmills were invented to torture people. This is a historical fact. In fact, let me throw this up here. It, it was uh, in the 1800s, uh, they, it was uh, invented for British prisoners. Um, helps if I put it on. Here we go. British prisoners. This is one image. You can Google this. You can get others. Plenty of, of videos and, and other uh, documentary uh, evidence of this. So what you'll notice here, these aren't treadmills as we know them today. They would be more of the, uh, the, the step master sort of things, right? And, and the reason we call these treadmills is that they're actually running a mill. 
right? So, so uh, th- they would spend a good chunk of the day on these, what we now call treadmills. And they would spend six or more hours a day. They would climb 5,000 to 1,400 feet a day. To give you an idea of what that is, that is half, that, that takes you halfway up Mount Everest. So every day you're going halfway up Mount Everest, okay? And then you're, you're going to go back to your prison cell. You're going to sleep and get up the next day, go up the, the rest of the way of Mount Everest, okay? And then you're going to start over, okay? So, so every day you're going halfway up Mount Everest, give or take. Well, there are some real benefits of this. Now, I'm not advocating this. There are some real benefits of this, right? For one, it helped uh, 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 reshape the British economy. Uh, this was invented right after the uh, Napoleon Wars, so, so, so the economy was just wrecked. And this, because they are treadmills, right? That word mill is important. Uh, it, it helped them to, to, to renovate the economy. It also kept the most unruly prisoners asleep, right? Let us be honest, okay? Uh, a study came out recently that people who exercise, particularly like runners, is that they're the laziest people you'll ever meet. And that is true. I, I can verify that. I, I still remember one of the last half marathons I ran. It was the one I ran another two hours. That was my goal. I was really proud of myself. I, I, we, I went back to the hotel, took a long, hot bath because I knew it was going to be sore, and then I drove home, right? Well, I rode home uh, 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 with family. And I remember my watch telling me, you need to move. You know what I wasn't going to do for the rest of that day? Move. Right. When, when you run, you, 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 you have one day a week. It's a long run day. You get up in the morning, you run as far as you can, and you do not move for the rest of the day. That's the rule. That is the rule, right? Your, your body needs, needs that rest. And, and so, so they found real benefits of this, that, that a lot of the security issues went down. A lot of the, the, the problems really went down. The problem is, as you can imagine, is this is torture. And I don't advocate torture. Call me liberal if you want, but I don't advocate uh, this, this sort of torture. Well, uh, you need to know this didn't stay in Britain. It came to the United States, went to other places until eventually uh, it was viewed as unacceptable. Um, what I find most interesting, in 1824, a New York pris- uh, prison guard by the name of James Hardy, credit, he, he was crediting the, 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 the device um, for taming his worst prisoners. But, but his quote, I think, is important here. Uh, he said, The monotonous steadiness and not its severity constitutes its terror. You need to meditate on that just a little bit. The monotonous steadiness, not its severity, constitutes its terror. If you've been on the treadmills, the sound of thump, 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 thump. It is the feeling of I'm moving, but I'm going nowhere, right? I'm moving, but going nowhere. I am stuck in a rut. Nothing is being accomplished. I'm wearing myself out and accomplishing absolutely nothing. Now, that may work as a device to keep the rowdy prisoners not so rowdy, but one gets the feeling that Solomon knows what that is like. You read Ecclesiastes, and, and that treadmill comes to mind. It's torture. But it isn't a device that is torture to Solomon. It is life itself that is torturous. Life itself. And so that is why we were overwhelmed with feelings of meaninglessness or purposelessness or, or perhaps that, that life seems to be passing by us and we can't keep up with it. And if you ever feel like that, then 
you are ready and prepared for a book like Ecclesiastes. Let's start here with, with these two verses, particularly with the meaning of this word vanity. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. As you can imagine, uh, the word vanity is sort of an important word in Ecclesiastes. After all, I believe verse 2 is the thesis of the entire book, as we'll see. But the problem is, what do we do with this word? How do we translate it? Remember, this is written in Hebrew, not in English. Your translation may say something different than mine. I'll put these up here. So if you're reading King James, ESV, NASB, or New King James like I am, it will say vanity. If you're reading uh, NIV, New Living Translation, some of these more thought for thought, it will say something like meaningless. If you're reading the Holman, or which is now called the Christian Standard Bible, they drop the Holman part. The Net Bible is, one, is probably my favorite translation and others. We use the word futility, right? Well, which is it, right? Why, 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 the, why the diversity? This is a fairly unique word in the, in, 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 in the Bible. I think, don't quote me on this if I remember right, you'll only find this Hebrew word used in this way only in Ecclesiastes. We looked at a different use of vanity last week. Well, all these, tra these translations are appropriate, and, and they do work, but there is more going on here than just mere meaningless or vanity. Solomon, if, 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 you're not, if you're not careful, he sounds like a college freshman coming home on Christmas break after he took his first ever philosophy class, right? You, you ever meet these guys? And you need to stay away from them, okay? They'll, they'll come home and say, Mom, Dad, I learned that life is meaningless, you know, and all this sort of stuff. That's what Solomon sounds like at first, right? Well, is me, life is pointless, uh, and, and all that sort of stuff. Now, to be clear, Solomon isn't saying everything in life is meaningless or futile or vain. Let me give you just two examples of this from Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 4, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after a wind. You know, that's worth reading again. A quiet day without the in-laws is good, Right? In-laws came by the house today to celebrate my son's 15th birthday. By the way, he's 15. You won't feel old, he's Frankfurt. He was six when we came here. 15. It'll be 15 Tuesday. Give me a minute, I'm a dad. Let me just be a dad for him. He's 15. 15! Good night. And like a 15-year-old, he thinks he's going to get a Corvette for his 16th birthday. Yeah, joke's on him. I think he should get, as I got, a, uh, not, not when I was 16, but a 1987 baby blue Chevy Nova zero to 60 sometimes, never uphill. That's, that's what a teenager needs right there. A car that won't move, it, he'll, it, the girls will stay away then. Anyways, so, so you see that, that this even momentary quietness, right? There's a blessing in that. You ever enjoy a day off, right? There's, there's something good in that. Solomon says, look, that's not meaningless. There's something good in that. Or Ecclesiastes 9, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. Boy, that's worth just stopping right there, isn't it? Enjoy life. Your marriage isn't pointless. Now, if we take what he says in verse 2 at face value, he's saying everything is futile, and that would include the, the phrase, everything is futile. That's the way a philosopher would, would approach this. But if you read it, he's saying, no, 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 no. If, 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 it's, if it's out of its context, if it's out of its purpose, if it's out of its design, then, then it becomes uh, vanity. It becomes futile. But there are things that, that are a real blessing that God has given us in this life. So the Hebrew word here is hevel. That'll be on your quiz at the end. And, and the root word is what it is we want to see here. It seems to be related to words like breath, mists, or even smoke. Let me give you just a few examples of this to prove my point. Isaiah chapter 57. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind, hevel will carry them all off. A breath, hevel, will take them away. You see the point? Is this the same, essentially the same word used here? It's the root word, that is. 
Uh, or consider Proverbs 21. It's interesting. It's Solomon again. Proverbs 21. The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor, a snare of death. Notice there that the word vapor is, is the root word translated here in Ecclesiastes as vanity. It's vapor. It's breath. It's smoke. It's mist, if you will. So this language of vanity of vanities, that, that, that sort of language throughout the Bible, right? We, we speak of kings and king, a king of kings and lord of lords, holy of holies, the song of songs. Paul would describe himself as the Hebrew of Hebrews. The idea is he's describing not just vanity in general, but the vanity of vanities. The vanity of vanities. He's saying that there's a whole list of vanities, but, but, but he's wanting to explore the very vanity of vanities. That's a different way to look at Ecclesiastes that I'm, I'm still exploring myself. If, if we were to go back to a previous study, I'm not sure I, I really quite understood that. So, so what are some of these vanities, right? I just want to highlight two main ones, if, if you don't mind. The first vanity of vanities is that life is fleeting. Life is fleeting. Remember that, that the word here, vanity, is the idea of vapor, smoke. Smoke is characterized by its ability to disappear, where does it go? You ever sit at the campsite with your girl, right? And, and you're watching the, the fire, getting mesmerized because you're a pyromaniac like every teenage boy is and you're just throwing stuff in there to see if it'll burn. But you're watching that smoke, right? And it rises to the sky and, and at some point it disappears, but you can't locate where that point is. Smoke just disappears. It's here. It seems real. It seems like something you can grasp, but it just, it just disappears. The same is true with life. Many of you have asked things like, where is time gone? In fact, just sort of just somewhat jokingly and the, the, the freak us all out is, my son is 15. He's not cute anymore. He's not been cute for a while, right? What is after, what, age six, seven, you stop being cute? Maybe eight, if you're lucky. Time is a train moving too fast and we can't seem to slow it down. Just yesterday, maybe you graduated high school. It was the last weekend I, I celebrated in my 20th uh, uh, high school reunion. 20 years. 20 years. It just doesn't, doesn't seem possible. Just yesterday, we were new parents. Just yesterday, we, we were walking down the aisle. Just yesterday, maybe, maybe you launched a business or just yesterday, you were getting ready to retire. Just, just yesterday, we, you lost your first tooth or your kids lost that first tooth or whatever, or whatever it is. And I think we, we, we've all experienced this that the older you get, the faster time moves. Let me give you an example of that, that when, when I was growing up, school felt like 40 hours each day, right? You got up too early to get on a bus, right? Uh, because we were like the first ones on the bus in the morning, last ones to get off in the afternoon. And then you go, right? And it just felt like forever. So my wife is off school on Tuesdays. The kids are at school. And, and, I, I, and, and, and one of these days, I plan on taking a day off to spend the whole day with her. But because we're parents, that day off gets filled with things we have to do, right? You know how this works, right? Like this Tuesday, she's off. The kids are in, in school, right? And, and I think, hey, I'm going to take that day off. Well, guess what? We've got to take one girl. Uh, one, uh, you know which kid it is now. You've got to take one kid to, to the doctor. Just, just no big deal. Just, just regular checkup. And then we've got to go get our real ID so we can fly in November. Day is shot. Because then we've got to pick the kids up at 3, 3.30. It's amazing. You get nothing done and the day is gone. Have you, I'm sure you've, you've experienced this, right? I mean, the, the, it's just passing by so fast. And, 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 and that means that the things we are investing in, trying to hold on to, they become fleeting because death 
is approaching us, and, and, and then time is the train that, that, that we, we just can't seem, seem, seem to escape, nor can we slow it down. So I want to show you how this works in Ecclesiastes. First of all, it, it show, uh, he argues that work is fleeting. Work is fleeting. Uh, turn to chapter 2 with me, if, if you don't mind. Chapter 2, we'll read in verse 18. We'll do a little bit of flipping here this, this evening. Um, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who, who will come after me. Of course, the man who comes after him will ruin his kingdom. We talked about that this morning. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Spoiler alert, he becomes a fool. Yet he will be master of all of which I toil and use my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Notice, this is part of the vanity. It becomes the vanity of vanities. The vanity here is that I toil and I work and I put everything in only for it to be squandered by the next generation. That means that life is fleeting and all that investing is will be lost and I can't enjoy it uh, forever and ever. That becomes the vanity of vanity. Life is too fleeting. You, you could read, read the rest there. I, I think you get the point uh, that he's describing there. He's lamenting that his career will be forgotten and even undone by the foolishness of the next generation. How many of you all still owe CDs? You own any? I got two CD cases in my car right now. You don't know why? Because my car is from the year 1998 and it is glorious. I, I, I love it, but, but you know how often I put CDs in that? Hardly ever. Hardly ever. Why? Because everything's digital now. You know that, that a guy invented CDs and he changed the music game. Changed the game. You don't know who he is and his life work goes down the drain the second Napster went live. Because everything became digital. And you got to think he's looking back at his life and, and man, what was the point of all that? What was the point of all that? As soon as it hit market, it was replaced. So our work seems so fleeting. And, and related to that, long life seems fleeting. Although taking care of our bodies is important and good, it is at best prolonging the, the inevitable. Let that be a blessing to you this evening. Look at chapter 3, if, if you don't mind. Chapter 3, verse 18. This, of course, is shortly after the you know, a, a time to be born, a time to die, all that. Chapter 3, verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man, what happens to the beasts is the same. One dies, so does the other. They all will have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beast for all his vanity. All go to one place, all from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes up or the spirit of beasts goes down to the, to the earth. So I saw there was nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for that is his lot who can bring him to see what will be after him. Well, that's an encouraging message, isn't it? We're no different than the beast in that we live and we die. I love a good conspiracy, not because I believe them all, but because I find them entertaining. Can I share with you a great conspiracy that you can spread around and I don't think anyone will be harmed? I think the Disney movie Frozen was invented to change Google searches. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Someone's been on Instagram and TikTok too much. So, so here's the way it works, right? The way it works is that Disney is trying to protect their brand. They used to try to protect their brand. Now they're just trying to ruin it with bad Star Wars movies. But among other things, Star Wars is the least of their problems, frankly. Um, but but the, 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 the conspiracy is that the, the rumor has gone for years that Walt Disney has frozen his body to... to to, to come back to life, right? I'm, I'm sure you heard all that. So they, they did the movie Frozen 
so that when you Google Frozen, you don't get anything about Walt Disney. You do with that information whatever you want. I think it's hilarious. Now, what's, what's the point? The, the, the point is that man has forever trying to prolong his existence, when in reality, we all end up in the same place. Righteous or unrighteous, man or beast, rich or poor, the powerful or the weak, the wise or the fool. In sports, weather is said to be the great equalizer. One team, if they lose because of, of the rain fell too hard, that, doesn't, that falls on deaf ears because the rain fell the same for the other team. Weather's the great equalizer. So is death. You can't escape it. It makes us all equal. Doesn't matter how wealthy you are, even if you can produce movies to, to change the Google searches, this is what's going to happen. And John Adams, I, I love this from John Adams, the former president and vice president. Posterity, you will never know how much it costs the present generation to preserve your freedom. I hope you will make a good use of it. If you do not, I shall repent in heaven that I ever took half the pains to preserve it. Well, he may think that, but he's dead. He's dead. Well, you get the summary of all of this in, in chapter 3, verse, verse 1 to 8, right? We've already referenced it. A time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, time to pluck up what is planted, time to kill, a time to heal, time to break down, a time to build up, time to weep, time to laugh, time to mourn, time to dance, time to cast away stones, time to gather stones, time to embrace, a time to refrain from embracing, time to seek, time to lose, time to keep, time to cast away, time to tear, time to sow, time to keep silence, a time to speak, a time to love, a time to hate, time for war, time for peace. The critic is not saying that life is futile. That is what we call nihilism. That is eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. But rather to say that life can become fleeting. Like one's breath on a cool day it is here today and gone tomorrow. Like a morning fog, one cannot grasp it, hold it, control it, or consume it. And by lunchtime, it disappears. Like a candle that is extinguished, one can smell the spoke and watch it ascend into the heavens, but it fades into the air. So life is fleeting. And if we try to put all of our identity and everything into who we make ourselves in this life, the problem is you and I will die. And whatever it is that we build will crumble in the next generation more likely. It's the vanity of vanities. Notice secondly here that life is an enigma. In fact, if, if I could focus on two words with that word vanity, it would be the word fleeting and the other word would be enigma. Smoke is something that looks solid, right? I'm, I'm sure you've, you, when you were a kid, when your mom was boiling something, eggs, water, whatever it is, you, you would try to grab the smoke. I don't know if you do that, or maybe the candle is, you know, you're doing this sort of thing. It, it looks solid. It looks like you can, you, you can grab it, but, but you can't. It's, it's, it's a mysterious enigma. It's neither solid nor liquid. It is, it is gas. It is smoke, and, and, and it, it's an enigma. And, and Solomon reflects on the, enig the enigma of life itself. Let me give you just two, two more examples of this. First is the enigma of pleasure. You can go back to chapter 2 and you can see this. We won't take the time to read it because we sort of touched on it this morning with the life of Solomon. Here is whenever he, 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 he speaks of the vanity of self-indulgence, wealth and women and everything else that he was guilty of. Um, and he was someone who, who thought that if it can be experienced, I will experience and I will find that there is fulfillment in it only to discover there is no fulfillment in them. One of the things I found with sports is that those who reach the pinnacle of their sport, it could be the Heisman Trophy, the World Cup, uh, National Championship, uh, Olympic gold, whatever it is, 
one of the common testimonies you find among those athletes is they, they, they reach the pinnacle, they, they, they go crazy, absolutely crazy. They can't believe that they, they've worked so hard to reach this. They've reached it, they celebrate with their teammates, they celebrate with their coaches, they, and, and, and then they, they, they wait for the parade and they get all of that and all of a sudden like that, there's that feeling of emptiness. A feeling of emptiness. Because you've spent your whole life for this moment and now it's gone. How can something that was so important to you, so central to your life, now disappear? It's a real mystery, isn't it? That's sort of Solomon's point there in in chapter 2 is, how is it that I pursued power and got it and it wasn't enough? I pursued women and got them and it wasn't enough. I pursued money and I got it and it wasn't enough. I pursued alcohol and, and addiction and I got it and it wasn't enough. Like nothing seemed to fix this. The enigma of pleasure It is the thing that we are always chasing and it never satisfies. But what do we do? We go and chase it again. Like a dog chasing his tail. He remembers the last time he caught his tail, didn't quite live up to expectations, but he's still chasing it again. And when he catches it, the same emotions and feelings will follow. You understand that whatever your big dream is, wealth, fame, followers, early retirement, whatever, will make us empty in the end. This is an enigma, isn't it? It's like we were made for this, and yet it's unsatisfying. Or what about the enigma of the prosperity of the wicked? We have all lamented how the wicked seem to prosper while the righteous seem to suffer. This is mentioned in chapter 4. It mentioned several places. Chapter 4, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. So I just don't understand this. The world was governed right, then the righteous would be blessed and the wicked would suffer, and yet it seems backwards. What an enigma that is. Turn to chapter 8 where he, he explores this in, in, in a little bit more detail. We won't read everything for the sake of time. Chapter 8. This is roughly around where, where we um, dropped off during COVID. Chapter 8, verse 10. He says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth. There are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. This too is vanity. You, you see, it's an enigma. This is the question that, that we all have. By the way, the Bible talks about this quite a lot. Let me show you in Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who appear in heart, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled my steps and nearly slipped for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It's a common lament you'll see everywhere. This is the enigma of life. And can God, how can God be good when the wicked prosper? The writer's answer is to ultimately point to the final judgment of God, but the question still hangs in the air. Who can make sense of this? The point isn't just this one specific issue. It is that we go about life and things don't seem to make sense. It doesn't seem to make sense. You ever watch your favorite sports team and they're winning games, but you don't know how? Arsenal. I think Louisville beat Notre Dame is a good example of that. They're not that good. Life is like that. 
We go through life, things seem to work out, and then we get through the day and you're thinking, something doesn't seem right. It's the enigma of life. So the, it is the vanity of vanities. So then what is the answer to this, right? One of the problems of Ecclesiastes, we come to it and we see that Solomon is asking good questions, but does he provide any solid answers? And I think he does. I think he does. I want you to note this, that this is the, the root issue of this book. It opens and closes with, uh, with, with the same, same statement, right? Chapter 1, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Chapter 12, the last chapter, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Right? So these are bookends, right? And, and so, so you, you, you open and you conclude with the same conclusion, which means the answer will be found in the middle. The exploration is found here in the middle. And let me give you the two answers that he has, right? We're doing twos all night, I guess. The two answers he gives to the vanity of vanities. The first answer he gives is fear. The writer's ultimate answer to the vapor of life is to fear the Lord. Because we will either fear man, fear our circumstances, or fear a sense of loss and vanity or we will, in our fear of the Lord, trust in his sovereign care over our lives. You'll notice here that, that because we fear the Lord, it is the Lord that gives meaning to our lives. If we fear man or we fear the vanity of our life, then our work, our toil, our efforts, our popularity, our followers, our accomplishments, our circumstances, all of that will then give meaning to our lives. And the problem is you're not good enough and powerful enough to secure that sort of purpose. So if we fear the Lord, he then gives us meaning. Let me give you just a few. I took several examples out. Ecclesiastes chapter 5. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. Well, that describes the United States of America, 21st century. But God is the one you must fear. You notice there that, that we can dream, we can dream, we can talk, we can talk, we can go, we can do, we can work. And all of that, what we find in the end is the enigma of life that we've achieved everything only to find emptiness. But if you fear the Lord, it doesn't matter if you're famous or forgotten. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, powerful or weak, on the inside or the outside. It's God that gives purpose to your life. Because you fear something greater than what may happen to you or what you may not achieve or whatever it is. Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times, we just read this, and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. It will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. This, this is ultimately uh, Solomon's answer. We'll see this more in, in a minute. Solomon's ultimate answer is that God is sovereign over the affairs of man, whether in this life or the next, justice will rule and reign. So don't worry about what you cannot control. God is the one ultimately in control. Let me give you just one more, Ecclesiastes 12. This is the main verse of the entire book. The end of the matter, after all has been heard, fear God, keep his commandments. It's the whole duty of man. That's his conclusion to everything, basically. Fear God, keep his commandments. Because when you fear man, you'll disobey God. When you fear God, you'll be willing to disobey man. But it is God who is the answer to life's mysteries. It is God who gives purpose to this vaporous life. It is God who solves the enigma of life. Well. So he turned out to be a Calvinist. <laughs> well, Arminians would agree with that too. Because they believe in that verse. 
All right, you're trying to get me in trouble. I know what you're doing. Well, Jacob Arminius would agree with that too. Anyways, the second and last one before, before y'all throw me out the window and dawn right after me is life. I love this. When your priorities are straight and that God gives purpose and meaning to everything in life, your relationship with Christ risen from the dead, who has conquered the grave and all of that sort of stuff, when that is set right, here's his message. Go and enjoy life. But it's fleeting yeah, but it's Christ that gives purpose to meaning to life. You're not going to understand why everything happens. No, but God will give you simple pleasures and the simple things for you to enjoy. We've already seen some of this, right? Um, but let me give you just, just two, two more examples. Uh, chapter 8, verse 15. I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Do you notice that? Fellowship meal is of God. Potlucks are of God. Pizza parties are of God. Yeah, right. Why? Because, because God has given simple blessings that should be enjoyed. Take that cheat day from your diet every once in a while. Now, you've heard me say this. I'm stealing this from others. That nihilism, that is to say that life has no purpose and meaning, will say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Which means, why should I eat, drink, and be merry? Because tomorrow I'm dead. The gospel comes along and says, yeah, let's eat, drink, and be merry. Yesterday we were dead. We're alive. We're alive. We've got reasons to celebrate. Jesus is risen from the dead. One of the first things he does is cooks breakfast. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, it's not, it's, it's. I mean, not as good as what you're getting in a hotel, and that tells you something, but it's still food. It's still food with friends. It's the simple things in life. That date night with your special someone, that vacation that you take, that maybe you splurge a little bit at your favorite restaurant or, or go, go spend the evening bowling to, to do whatever it might be, an evening with the kids or the grandkids, whatever it is. And Solomon's point isn't that life is meaningless, just be miserable. It's say that God has given you meaning in what is an otherwise a meaningless existence. Enjoy God's gifts. God is still creator of the universe, whether he's a Calvinist or not. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, uh, he has this, Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, grape juice for you Baptists, and for God has already approved of what you do. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. We saw this earlier. All the days of your vain life he has given you under the sun because that is your portion of life and in your toil at which you toil under sun. Let me, let me show you something here. Is one of the things I, I find interesting is that the more godless we become, the more miserable we become. And it ought to be the Christians who walk through life with a smile knowing that life is a real pain in the neck. You get up early to do the same job you did yesterday for the same pay you got yesterday to pay the same bills you paid last month. You'll do it for a smile, with a smile. The rest of the world can, 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 can drop out of marriage or complain about their spouses or, or, or whine about their ex-spouse or, or their stepchildren or how, life, how difficult life is. And the Christian ought to be come through here and say, yes, life is difficult, but I have the joy of Christ living in me. This is why I will never understand Christians who have a permanent scowl upon their face. Christians ought to be able to laugh because Christ is risen from the dead. You ought to be able to joke around, whether it's a funny dad joke or a terrible dad joke or whatever it may be in between. 
And there ought to be a sense of joy when at least two Christians are gathered together. People ought to be able to walk into this church and know this place is different. We have the same problems, the same struggles, the same everything, but it's different. Why? Because we're among the people of God. Yes, life is vaporous. Yes, life is an enigma, but God gives meaning to it all. Often we overcomplicate the blessed life, pursue the good things in life. So if you want to get off the treadmill, pursue Christ. That sounds so simple, doesn't it? Yeah, that's his point. You read Ecclesiastes and you realize that he is looking deep into your soul. And in the end, he says, there is Christ. Fear him. Follow him. And he'll give you a joy that death itself can't rob you of. That's the good news of the gospel. Well, let's close out in prayer.